Today we're starting a sermon series that hopefully will be familiar to most of you. Um, as some of y'all know, every year we like to spend some time looking at the four pillars of Risen Hope. And the first one is, I feel like if I was a youth minister, I would like hand out snicker bars here if you got the correct, if you knew all four of them, but we're not going to do that. Uh, the first one is centrality of Christ. The second one is sufficiency of scripture. The third one is family of faith. And then the fourth one is love where you live. And we've gone through these um, every year, and every year we've looked at them through a different lens in the Bible. Last year we were in the prophets, and this year we'll be in the book of Acts. However, since this will be, of course, the last time we're going through these together, uh, we're actually going to start today uh, not with one of the pillars, but with Risen Hope's mission statement, which is that we would know and show God. So I'll speak on this today, and then next week we'll move to the centrality of Christ. Um, So as we get started today, please join me again in prayer uh, as I ask God for help. Almighty Father, thank you for being here with us, Lord. You've already been here with us in worship, Lord. We feel it. Lord, we're so thankful, Father, for this opportunity, Lord, that you give us week after week, Lord, to gather together as a body, as a family, to worship together, to learn together, Lord. Um, Thank you so much, Lord, for the friends and the family we have here, Father. Um, Many things that we often take for granted and uh, these days maybe don't as much as we used to, Lord. Um, Thank you, Father. Be with us. Be with me, Lord. Um, Please use me, Father, um, and teach all of us here today, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. So as I mentioned, uh, Risen Hope's central foundational concept has been from the very first day, uh, from the very first time the church met, to know and show God. And really, every sermon that's been preached uh, has been in one way or another upholding those two principles. We're trying to know God better, and then as a result, we're trying to show Him to those around us. And today, uh, as our time together as a church winds down at the end of the year, um, I think we have just seven services left uh, after today. I want to talk specifically on those two concepts and to try to answer the following questions. How can we know God and how can we show God in our day-to-day lives? How can we really, really know Him, truly know Him, and how can we really show Him in a practical way uh, in our everyday life? So to start, I want to touch very briefly on the question of why it's important to truly know God. Why isn't it good enough to just know a bit about Him, to know the basics? or kind of the high-level stuff. Um, And to answer this, uh, turn with me to Acts 22. In these verses, we're going to be reading uh, the first bit of Paul's testimony given by himself. And we're actually going to stop right before Paul talks about meeting Jesus. So in Acts 22, uh, we're going to start with verse 3. Paul says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, referring to Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed to Damascus, to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. So in Paul's account here, he makes it clear that he was a firm and solid believer in Yahweh, 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the same God that we worship. He worshiped God, and he considered himself clearly a very devout follower and disciple of God. In fact, he says here he was zealous for God. And yet at the same time, he was persecuting Christians to the death, he said. So the question is, how could someone be so zealous for God and yet be wanting to hunt down Christians and put them to the death? What was the issue here that caused this? What was Paul lacking? What he was lacking was that he did not actually know God. In his case, he did not know God personally, and he lacked an awareness of something absolutely crucial about God, namely that God had, through great mercy and unbelievable compassion, sent Christ to this earth to atone for our sins, to offer us reconciliation. Paul didn't know this, which means that he didn't really know God. And thankfully for Paul's sake, God was about to change this for him. And also thankfully for our sakes, uh, none of us are unaware of this fact either, as Paul once was. We've met Christ. But we can see here what happens when someone does not know God, does not truly know God. In, in the same way, if our understanding of who God is is flawed, then our lives are going to reflect that. We live our lives based on our knowledge of God, based on our knowledge of who God is, and based ultimately whether, on whether or not we know Him. The ways in which we know God matter, and what we know about Him matters. And we will get our understanding of God from somewhere. We won't just make it up out of whole cloth. I think a lot of us around the world, especially people, tend to think that, that they've come up with it um, sort of out of nothing. But we don't develop our understanding of God that way. It comes from somewhere, either from a trustworthy source or from somewhere else. Galatians 4 engages that reality for the Christian. Galatians 4 verse 9 says, But now that you, Christian, have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? What Paul's talking about here in Galatians is that there are ways in which the world pursues God. There are ways in which the world seeks to know God. And as Christians, we must understand that as Galatians says, we cannot turn to these same weak and worthless elementary principles. How well we know God and what we know about who He is affects us, even as Christians. Proverbs 14 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. That has always been true for everyone. There are ways that seem right to us. They really do, but they're not from God. They're not of God. So before we talk about the first of the two things, how to know God, I want to talk about a few ways about how to not know God. And these ways, this is important because not only are, our, are we inclined to follow these ways, our sinful hearts lead us down these weak and worthless elementary principles, but the world celebrates these ways as incredibly virtuous. So I'd like to give you two of the biggest principles here. Uh, and one, one way to think about these as we're talking about knowing God and showing God is that these are two ways to fail at knowing God to fail at arriving at a proper and true understanding of God. So here's the first one. Follow your heart, meaning let your heart lead you. It will reveal truth to you. Trust in what you feel and what your heart's deepest desires are. This is something we hear a lot today, um, that following your heart is good, uh, that your goal 
shouldn't be to know God, but rather to understand your heart's desires. Like truly, what are your deepest desires? And be true to your heart, something we often hear said. And we also hear that it's wrong to try to deny someone from following after the longings of their heart. But the Bible, of course, says about the heart of man that it is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Mixed into every longing in our heart is the toxin of sin. And we know this, uh, selfish ambitions, uh, vain desires, lust, and greed. These are what guide us when we trust our hearts. These are what we follow when we're left to our own ways. And we like to think that as Christians, deep down, we're really moral people. Like truly, on our own, we would do the right thing. Most people, I think everyone tends to think that, even unbelievers, that deep down they really are good people. I heard Paul Washer say one time that the easiest way to understand that that isn't true, that you are not deep down good, is to imagine a TV channel tuned in to your constant stream of thoughts and desires. That all of your family, all of your friends can watch this TV channel, they can tune in whenever they want in real time and listen to the things that are going on in your head, the things that your flesh and your heart are desiring that as Christians we're having to fight back against through the power of our faith in Christ. The desires of our heart can not only be totally wicked, but they're very often, and we know this, truly inconsistent. I know I personally can wake up one day genuinely, fiercely wanting something, really thinking that I want it, and then wake up the next morning wanting nothing to do with it, just nothing at all, and have completely changed my mind. Our hearts are really that fickle. And it's also the case that our hearts tell us a lot about God. Our hearts try to convince us of a lot of things about who God is, mostly about why he's okay with something that we're doing, something that we maybe want to do at a particular moment. But the God that our heart is communicating to us there is not really God at all, of course. And whenever we let our hearts define who God is, it leads to a small g version of God who, it turns out, looks a lot like who we are. Our heart will not tell us the truth about who God is, and we can't know God by trusting in our emotions by trusting in the sinful nature of our hearts. We need something more than just our intuition and our feelings. And here's a second way to fail at knowing God, and I think this is probably the most common. Um, I think probably most of the world does this, including us. Uh, and this is our tendency to trust the general consensus about who God is, to believe what society tells us about God, about his commandments, and about how he interacts with the world to trust society when it comes to how God interacts with mankind and engages good and evil. In every age, society arrives at various points of consensus about God. This has always been the case. You can read the philosophers from thousands of years ago, hundreds of years ago, but the truth of the matter is that these worldly viewpoints on who God is are constantly shifting. They are constantly changing and evolving. They're never static. The world may have a very well-accepted view about God, about who he is, that all of society generally agrees with. They could say, yes, we think God is this way. And then within 30 years or 100 years, that generation dies out, the next generation grows and shifts to something completely different, something totally different. And then that generation grows older, and maybe they go back to the previous viewpoint. This is really obvious if you watch movies from like the 50s, and then watch movies from like the 80s, and then watch current movies, you can see how society as a whole is continually shifting and wavering 
on how it feels about an all-powerful God and about who he is. I'll give you an example I've heard before. Um, I think it was Keller maybe that gave this. He said in the Middle Ages, in the Middle Ages, a man could be living in London and he could have two very distinct separate urges. One urge could be to take revenge on someone that has dishonored his family name. That's the first urge that he feels. And then another one could be to engage in a homosexual relationship. At that time, society would have considered the first urge totally acceptable. The honor of your family name back then really meant something. And it means something different now than it meant back then in a, in a big way. And of course, the second urge would not have been accepted at all. It would have gotten him shunned from society or worse. And today, these are flipped. You would receive the opposite reaction from society for each of those urges. A few hundred years pass, and it's not always that everything is just more accepted, which is generally what people like to think. Some things are, but other things aren't. Other things become rejected. There's a shifting and changing set of morals that is not based in anything other than the whims of man. Society always likes to think that we're at the apex of morality, or, or at least on the curve upward. We are really close to being perfectly moral. Certainly the world thinks that today, that they are, they are right on that curve. But the truth is that society has absolutely no way of predicting how it's going to feel about anything 50 years from now, 100 years from now, even five years from now. It has no idea what the general sentiment on something will be, as much as it wants you to believe that right now it's very close to being right about what's really good and what's really bad. The winds of culture can and will shift completely, and things that are acceptable now become completely unacceptable and vice versa. Um, Keller, again, I think once said that it's just simply irrational to shut out Christianity, to reject all that it offers, because it offends one of your strongly held beliefs that a few generations from now, your descendants are probably going to think is totally abhorrent, or at least outdated. We can't trust the world, just like we can't trust our hearts, we can't trust the world to reveal to us who God is, because the ungodly world, by its very nature, does not know God, and so it can't lead us to him. So what can we trust? If following our heart and listening to the world, both things that are held today as very virtuous, if those cannot lead us to God, then what can? And the answer uh, is the first of the five tenets of the Reformation, sola scriptura. Scripture alone speaks authoritatively on God. It speaks authoritatively and it speaks to all believers independent of church leaders and church councils, independent of human spoke, so-called spokesmen for God. God has given us one way, one measuring stick against which everything we hear about God must be held up against, must be tested against. Turn with me to Acts 17 verse 10. Here, Paul is going to be preaching the gospel to the Jews of Beria. And these are Jewish people who, they want to do the right thing. They really want to know God. So let's start reading with verse 10, Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Beria. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
So these Berean Jews, who the Bible here says were noble, were confronted with someone telling them something about God, telling them something about who God is and the way that he's interacted with the world. That's what Paul was doing to them. And how did they respond? How did they judge the truth of what they were being told? It says that they studied, studied the scriptures to see if these things were so. It says they studied them daily, actually, not just once. They looked to the world, sorry, they looked to the word and they test what they hear Paul saying against the word. And what we read here is that that is noble. That's the noble thing to do. We should compare what we've heard to what the Bible says. We can learn from this book, from the scriptures, that God himself wrote things about who he is, and he's given this to us through his prophets. He gave us the words in the Bible specifically that we might know him. And what these passages say is that using what the passages we just read said is that using the Bible to judge what we hear about God is more noble than judging it in some other way. It's more noble than thinking about it really carefully to see if it sounds reasonable or comparing it to what we've been taught by the world or maybe what feels right inside. It's through examining the scriptures to see what they say about God that we determine the truth of something. And this doesn't mean that we should take what people say about the scriptures and trust it as gospel. The world has a lot to say, not only about God, but about the Bible as well, and about what the Bible says. I've heard plenty of people say that Jesus never said he was God. The New Testament not only makes it perfectly clear that that's exactly who he's saying he is, but it was also perfectly clear to the people around him at the time because some of them tried to stone him for saying he was God. John 10 says that's specifically why they're trying to kill him. The point is, relying on others to teach you the Bible is not a replacement for reading it and knowing it yourself, because they're not going to tell you what's in it 100% of the time. Either you won't know what it says when you hear things from the world, so you'll assume that what the world is telling you is true, if it sounds reasonable enough, or, and in some ways this is worse, when you don't read and study the Bible yourself, we end up comparing what the Bible says to how we feel about what we've learned from the world. Our worldly knowledge and feelings become the measuring stick. And when we read something in the Bible, we hold it up to that measuring stick. And we say, how does this compare against what I feel and, and what I've learned from the world? If the Bible doesn't line up with how we feel about who we think God is, then we need to be asking ourselves, where did we get our knowledge of God from? Because to be clear, it came from somewhere. Either it will come from his word or it will come from somewhere else. And if our understanding and knowledge of God doesn't come from scripture, then the truth is it comes from an amalgamation of what we've seen on TV and what we've read and what we learned in school and the traditions of our country and our family and a thousand other places. That's where it would come from. So we need to be very intentional about where we get our knowledge of God from. When the world says that what the Bible is teaching is not acceptable in some way, we have to ask, well, what are you measuring that against? What's the authority here? When they say that, it's being measured against the concept of God generated by the world. What we know of God must come from the only authoritative source we have, which are his holy words given to us in the scriptures. Our knowledge of God must begin with the Bible. And so I want to give you three quick ways to help, help do that, to help us understand God through his word. Actually, four ways. The first way is, of course, to read it, um, to spend time reading the Bible, 
that's the best possible way to help us know God. But to kind of go further in, in through that one, um, the second way is to ask God to make you love reading the Bible. Ask him to help you just enjoy reading it, to give you a love for it. Isaiah 66 says that God looks to those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. That's what we should ask God to give to us, a spirit of humility when we approach his word and a love for reading it. When I was in my early 20s, um, I found reading the Bible very tedious. Um, I really just did it because I, I knew I was supposed to. Um, I wasn't a Christian when I was a, a child, and so it was something that I just did, but I didn't really enjoy it. Um, but at some point, I remember asking God, I think over a long period of time, um, I, I started realizing I should ask him to give me a love for it, um, to help me enjoy, actually enjoy reading it. And at some point, without me even realizing it necessarily, he did. He genuinely did answer my prayer. And I, I do now. I love reading it. Uh, and there's so much to love in it. The Bible is so varied. It's so rich and deep with the wonders of who God is and what he's done for sinners like us. I mean, Acts, the series that uh, we're going to be centered in, uh, or the scripture we're going to be centered in through this series we're in now, is an incredible book because it's very historical and modern and real. And when you read it, it, it feels modern and it's teaching you what God did uh, as he founded the church. Job is another one of my favorite books uh, because it tackles uh, clearly how to deal with suffering in a way that uh, we're not going to learn from the world. Um, it's also one of the most poetic books in the Bible. Um, there's so much to love in God's Word, um, so we should ask God to give us a love for reading it. It may take time like it did for me, or it could be fast, um, but please read the Bible and ask God to give you a joy and a love for what's written. The third way to know God through His Word is to ask Him to help us understand it. Not just to help us love it, but to help us understand what it's saying. And that's something else that has only happened for me in the past 10 to 15 years. Um, I understood the more obvious portions of the Bible, but there's a depth in it that is waiting for all of us that the saints throughout the years have found and devoted their lives to understanding. A depth in the Scriptures. And if we will read and pray and ask God to give us this understanding to show us what the point of a passage really is or how it adds to something else that we've already read, what it's communicating to us, if we will read it and ask him to show up, give us understanding, then he will. He does it for me constantly. Uh, the fourth way here to know God through his word is to listen to trustworthy teachers who exegete it. Um, and this is something, this is the easiest way, uh, and it requires the least amount of effort, of course, and we really only get proper return out of it when we're studying the Word ourselves and, and reading the Bible ourselves. And this, is, this reason, this fourth way here, listening to trustworthy teachers, this is why it's so important to be part of a local church, so you can be part of a body being regularly taught from the Word. And this is different from watching or listening to preachers on TV and on your phone, which can be valuable, but it's far more important to be part of a body that comes together, supports one another in regular and constant teaching, in learning, in the journey of knowing God's Word more. And knowing God through His Word uh, is required to be able to show Him. If we don't know God, then what we will show of Him is a weak and false version to the world. It's only by reading the Bible, by using our time in the Word, that we will be able to genuinely and accurately show God to others. 
being with Christ in the Word really does matter when it comes to showing God to others. And this is just as important for us today as it was for the disciples. Uh, Turn with me to Acts 4 so we can see how knowing God affected how they showed Him to others. We're going to pick up with um, verse 5 in Acts 4. And this is where we start at here is Peter and John have been teaching and proclaiming the power of God to those around them. They've been teaching Christ and proclaiming the power of Christ to the peoples around them. So let's start at verse 5, and we're actually going to read down to 13 in Acts 4. It says, On the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them, meaning Peter and John, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Meaning the teaching and the miracles. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined here today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it all be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John here are extremely bold. Not only do they answer the questions being asked of them, but they also try to teach the gospel to those asking the questions, the people opposing them. And it says here, Peter and John were uneducated, common men. So it wasn't their pedigrees that made them effective at showing God. Their audience, it, here, it says here, recognized that it was because they had been with Jesus. They'd spent time with him. Elsewhere in the Word, it says that at this time, the apostles were devoting themselves to, it says, prayer and the ministry of the Word. This is what we should strive for as well, to truly know God and be able to show Him as a result of spending time with Him. Just like Peter and John here, where it was obvious that they had been with Jesus, if we make it a goal to show God whether through evangelism or just through our day-to-day actions, if we make that our goal, but we don't study the Scripture and know Him, then when it comes to showing God, we're going to fail much more often than we'll get it right. Or we just won't do it at all, um, and showing Him will be sort of a happy accident that happens rather than something we're actively seeking to do because we have spent time with Him. We have to know Him to be able to show Him in a real way. And there are two sides to this coin to showing God. There's sort of our daily default actions, um, kind of the things that happen that we're not necessarily thinking about. And then there's, of course, what we're directly, purposefully saying to others. In terms of our daily sort of baseline actions and how those show God, uh, turn with me to Ephesians 4, and we're going to start with uh, verse 17. Paul says here in Ephesians verse 17, chapter 4, now, I, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them 
due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. What Paul's talking about here, he's describing a transition from unrighteousness and impurity into what he calls true righteousness and holiness. What he's presenting here is a new way of life, which is different than our former way. And this new way is rooted in the truth of Christ Jesus. This new self is rooted in righteousness and holiness. And how seriously we take those two words, righteousness and holiness, will affect our day-to-day actions and will affect how we show God to others. How we act, how we view holiness directly affects how we show God. And it specifically affects how we communicate the gospel to people. If we're not putting off our old self and pursuing holiness, then when we try to show God to others by telling them about the gospel, our words are going to be weighed down to how we've already, by how we've already been showing God to them. There's a tension here between holiness and being in the modern world that has never been more difficult than it is today. Uh, there are so many things forcefully inserting themselves into our lives and dragging us away from being holy and pulling us into worldliness. And we all feel this every way, uh, every day, I mean, in every way, uh, a desire to be part of this world. Um, we have these worldly desires to walk the line as closely as we possibly can between holiness and being in the world, being a part of the world. And it's easier today, certainly with everything around us, than it ever has been to step over that line um, and give in to what Paul says here are deceitful desires. And in doing so, we're going to be showing God not in the way that we want. Because the truth is, is that if we're watching Game of Thrones and then going into work the next morning, discussing it with our coworkers, then we're not showing God to them. They may relate more to us because we can talk about the same TV shows as them, which is one of the common reasons that we give for engaging in worldly things so that we're not out of touch. Um, but regardless of the words that we're saying when we're trying to evangelize, if we've already spent our time showing God in a way that shows that sin is entertainment and that holiness is kind of secondary, then the people around us, the way we've showed God to them, their starting point for Christianity is that you can be a Christian and pretty much do the same things that the rest of the world does. You don't really need to be holy. And not to pick on Game of Thrones, it's just low-hanging fruit because it's something that um, is really popular and a lot of Christians uh, engaged in. When it comes to our day-to-day actions, we should strive for being known for being godly above all else. Just like Peter and John who spent time with God and then had that overflow out of them, we should know God so intimately that we can't turn him off when we're around others. In this part of the country, uh, if you're on an email chain, I've seen this at work, and a coworker tells you that they're like out sick today, and you respond and tell them, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, I'll, I'll pray that you feel better. Down in the South, where I'm from, no one bats an eye at that. That's a completely normal thing to say. Uh, but up here, that sort of thing, people notice that. Uh, first, for the compassion, and then secondly, for the fact that you apparently believe in God, 
and you believe he can answer prayers? I had a coworker, a non-Christian coworker, sorry, uh, call me one time, actually this past July, before a 4th of July party that we were going to go to. And he called me and told me, his name's Nathan, he called me and told me that some of the other people at the party were planning on bringing a substantial amount of alcohol uh, and um, a bunch of recreational drugs. Um, and he told me that they were planning on using all that at the party. And after he said that, he said something to me like, oh, I know you're a Christian, and uh, I just wanted to give you a heads up since I know you don't do that stuff. Um, and obviously, I was really touched that he thought to call and tell me this, and I had no idea what I had said to him uh, that had caused him to think about this when he heard that, because he had no problem with that stuff, uh, and then call me and tell me. But that experience obviously encouraged me, but it also sobered me, because it means that the little things we're doing really matter. Uh, people are noticing them. What we do and what we don't do both matter. They are some of the ways that we show God to others, or that we don't show Him to others. And whether we see it or not, others are seeing it. Um, they're seeing these little things. Our baseline everyday actions and words include these sort of conversations that we don't even think about, that in some ways we're choosing to show God to others. And showing God to others means not leaving our Christianity here in this building or at home with our family, not turning it off when we're out in the world at work or at the store or at homeschool co-op, Part of showing God means being Christ-like in building relationships with other people around us. It means bringing our Christianity to every single relationship we have, showing compassion when it's needing and generosity. These are two things that Christianity had kind of a monopoly on being generous and compassionate over the past several hundred years, but charity and good works have recently fallen back into vogue with the secular world, especially in the corporate world. Um, I know a lot of y'all uh, who work and the corporate world see that. Um, but this means that as believers, we've got to step things up and not slack off on showing Christ to others, not only in how we interact generally with them, but also in offering assistance and, and help when someone's hurting or in need. There's an old colloquialism that we probably all know that says, share the gospel and when necessary, use words. And I've heard it said that that was never actually said, and I really hope it wasn't because it's a terrible way to try to fulfill the Great Commission. Jesus' command that we make disciples of all nations. The point of that colloquialism is what we've been talking about here, which is that our day-to-day -day actions, our words, are critical in how we show God to others around us. But at the same time, in order to show God, we must preach. Romans 10.14 says plainly, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? It's clear here that no one is saved unless they hear the gospel of Christ and call on his name and believe. It's not enough just to be compassionate and helpful. Those are really important for Christians more today now than ever. But that's not enough. You have to preach the gospel. And sharing the gospel can be extremely intimidating. Um, I remember talking with Michael. This isn't in my manuscript. so uh, I remember talking with Michael about when you went on your mission trip. Uh, was it Turkey? Uh, and how even over there, when you're, that's what you're there to do, uh, that it's still, there's, there's a level of, of intimidation uh, and just sort of nervousness that comes along with it. And some people are straight up willing to open a conversation with a stranger by asking, do you know Jesus? I personally find that really hard to work my way into. Uh, and so I don't, what I want to encourage all of you here today with regarding showing God in this way, literally telling someone about him, is to find your own way 
that fits in with you of bringing it up. Look for ways to bring it up that makes, context, that makes sense in the context of who you are and what you normally talk about with people. Since I work in the video game industry, I found that coworkers are always talking a lot about their childhoods, about video game consoles they owned, games they played when they were 10 years old versus 15 years old. They couldn't afford certain consoles, so they could only afford other ones. Um, and one of the easiest ways I've found is, that allows me to bring up the gospel is to start by following that up with asking about their childhood in general, or even just bringing it up uh, just out of nowhere, asking about their childhood. That's not a really necessarily uncommon uh, thing to do in my industry. And I found that almost everyone loves to answer questions about growing up, about, about stories from their, from their childhood. So I'll ask sometimes about their parents or if they have siblings. And a very easy follow-up question, which can come later in the conversation or at some other time, is, so was your family religious at all? And I ask because I'm a Christian, so I'm super religious, so I always find that interesting, uh, asking about other, other people's families. And at that point, regardless of what their answer is, you really have a door because you can keep asking follow-up questions or just give the completely natural response of telling them about your childhood. And when I res responded in these situations and talked about how I was not raised uh, until my teenage years um, in a Christian home, somebody asked me one time, I thought all Christians had just been indoctrinated by their parents. I thought that's how, the only way you got into it, really. How did you become a Christian then? Uh, which is obviously, they were trying to take a dig at Christianity, but that's the exact question you want to get as a Christian. How did you become a Christian? Matthew 28 describes the Great Commission as Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations. And these are the kind of conversations we have to have if we want to fulfill that command. Showing God to others by proclaiming Christ is not an option for us. And if opening that door by saying, can I tell you about Jesus, is easy for you, then do that. But if it isn't, then find your own way of getting there. Find your own way of stepping down the path to those questions. Find a way that fits in with who you are in the situation you're in. The Apostle Paul did this. As bold as he was in writing to fellow believers, we have examples of him taking that kind of approach when it came to other situations he was in. In Acts 17, Paul is going to speak to both religious and non-religious people in Athens, basically anyone that's willing to gather together and listen to him. And prior to his speech, uh, in Acts 17 and verse 16, if you want to turn there, it says he saw many idols in the city. His spirit was provoked within him, meaning he was coming into this situation upset. Uh, and yet, let's skip ahead to verse 22, Acts 17, verse 22. This is the way Paul engaged with his audience. 17, verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives, life, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him, and it's in quotations here, in him we live and move and have our being, as, some of your, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 
And Paul goes on here, and he says more, and then at the end of it, he gets mocked by people, which again is maybe relatable in some ways. But what's incredible about this speech is that Paul does not come out of the gate immediately preaching the gospel, which he would be totally justified in doing. He saw how many idols there were in the city, and it really troubled him. He knew these people were far from God. But what he chooses to do, the way he chooses to show God, is to look at the situation he's in and engage with the people in a way that fits with who they are. And we can think about this approach in kind of three steps. First, he observes the audience he's in the midst of. He has at least a small understanding of what's driving the people he's talking to, what they find their identity in. And then second, he engages with that, with something they understand. That's where he starts. And and later, he even quotes one of their own poets, a secular poet, presumably. And then thirdly, finally, he connects that to the gospel. He doesn't even immediately start with Christ. He gets to Christ, but he starts by talking about the characteristics of God, which is something he knows his audience can relate to because they're, they're so religious. They do believe in the idea of God or gods. This is absolutely an approach that we can and should take to show God to someone. Paul says to them that God does not live in temples made by man as though he needed anything. And Paul says that because he knows God. He knows that truth about God, which is different than what these people believed. Paul is able to communicate the truth about who God is because he knows God. And for us as well, these two things are intrinsically tied together. That's why we spent the first half here talking about how to know God. As Christians, if we really do take knowing God and showing God seriously, we need to ask God to help us do both of them. We need to read the Bible daily and ask God to give us a love for it. We need to study it, listen to trustworthy teachers in a local church that we're a part of. And then we need to use our relationship with God and how we know Him to lead us to share Him with others, to show Him through acts of teaching and kindness and generosity, and to show Him to others in just the default way that we talk every day. Most importantly of all, we need to show Him to others by just telling them who He is, by telling them who He really is, not who the world says He is, not who people want Him to be, or who our hearts want to try to convince us He is. We talked about Scripture alone being the foundation for knowing God. And I mentioned that being the first tenet of the Reformation. And when I wrote this, I actually didn't even know that Reformation Day is, is it tomorrow? I, I had no idea about that. Um, I, didn't, I found that out after I'd written the first draft of this. Um, and so I want to close together today by reading the closing portion of Martin Luther's final speech before the Holy Roman Emperor in 1521. In this speech, the reason I'm reading this is that he hangs his entire life on knowing God. And he specifically does it through Scripture. And as I start reading here, I want to warn you, the way he addresses his audience might today sound like kind of an over-the-top sarcastic remark, but it's how he's being respectful and compassionate and trying to show God to the audience that's listening to him, to the emperor. Okay, so here's what Martin Luther said to close his speech. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it's as clear as noonday that they've fallen into error and even in the glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture by, or by cogent reasons, if I'm not satisfied by the very text I've cited, 
and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, then I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. God help me. Amen. Martin Luther's conscience here, he makes it clear over and over again, was held captive to the Word of God. Through his time reading the Word and through prayer, he knew God. And his sincere desire was that those listening to him would know God as well. He was trying to show God to them. These two things must be the desire of every Christian. They must be our desires. That we would A, know God, that the world around, and because the world around us is screaming and shouting at us as to who they want God to be. They're trying to wedge their own version of God into our soul, so we have to know Him ourselves. And then B, in knowing Him, we must show Him through what we do, through what we say. Know and show God may be Risen Hope's mission statement, but Risen Hope will cease to exist at the end of this year, about eight weeks. And so what will matter then is not whether or not our church was dedicated to knowing and showing God, but what will matter then and what matters now is whether we ourselves are dedicated to that. So let's pray. Holy God, Almighty Father, we want to know you, Lord. Our flesh pulls at us. The world pulls at us, Father. Please, God, cast it all aside and bring us into closeness with you, Lord. Give us a love for your words, Father. We love you. Thank you, Father, that you hear us right now, Lord. You're with us. You hear our prayers, Father. Thank you, Lord. What an honor, Father, that we can pray to you. We're so thankful, Lord, for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, Lord, that made this so. Give us a love for you, Father, and let that overflow out of us, Father, to the ones around us through what we say and what we do, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.